Well, we recently started the book of Mark two weeks ago. Uh, we looked at an introduction to the book of Mark and what the key themes and setting of that book were. And then last week we were on vacation, so I guess this morning it's almost like we're starting it all fresh and over again as we look in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And really, this morning's message is on the beginning of the gospel as John prepares the way for Jesus. You know, who doesn't love a great story? Um, for me, the story found in the movie, The Man from Snowy River, is one of the best stories ever. Um, in the story, young Jim Craig's father dies unexpectedly in an accident, forcing him to forge a home in the outback alone. Most of the people around him didn't think he had the maturity, had the experience, uh, the skill set to make it work out there in the wilderness, but Jim Craig, defying everybody's belief in him, goes on and forges a home there in the outback. And though the odds are against him, he shows himself to be a strong man with exceptional character, even capturing the valuable stud belonging to the wealthy rancher. In doing so, he manages to round up a brood of wild horses. Amidst everyone's amazement, Jim looks at Mr. Harrison, the wealthy rancher, and makes this statement. There are a dozen good broodmares in that mob. I'll be back for them and for whatever else is mine. Referring to Jessica, his daughter. When I was young, that storyline captivated me. Um, I think sometimes it still does. I think every man wants to have that adventure in his life. And I can remember growing up in high school as that movie came out. Anybody remember that story? You need to go watch it again. It's just a great story. And uh, I remember being in high school. I thought Jim Craig in the movie was just the greatest guy ever. I mean, you remember? I mean, I've seen the movie. He's going down a cliff that's like this. And everyone says, that's not for real. It is actually a real scene. In fact, in the first time they took the movie, he broke several ribs because of a fall and ended up waiting several months to retake the shot from the, for that film. And uh, I remember thinking, man, I want a hat like that guy has when I was in high school. I want a big, long ranch coat like that guy had. Uh, and uh, you know, even, even the song is Jessica's in the background playing Jessica's theme. Na, 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 na. Yeah, it, you wanted to be part of it all. The story captivated you. Yeah, you guys are laughing. Yeah, I always wanted to be part of that. But that's what a good story does, doesn't it? It drags you into the plot, and it makes you want to be part of it. It captivates you. Well, really, this morning is the beginning of a great story. It's an exciting theme to be sharing. And when we think of the beginning of the gospel coming to mankind, it doesn't get more exciting than that. Really, what we see here in the opening text of Mark 1 is two prophetic texts being fulfilled. First, you have Jesus as Isaiah's promised Lord. And secondly, you have John as Micaiah's promised Elijah. And the good news is the theme of the opening text. And John Mark is heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. The story of the gospel is really, if you will, beginning. Well, before we look any further, let's look to the Word of God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your Word, to apply it to our hearts and our lives. And I pray, God, that we would take the message of what we're hearing and reading about this morning, Lord, and do just that, that we might apply it to our hearts and our lives, that we might make the practical application to where each of us lives. And I ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, first of all, the beginning, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. If you would, follow along as I read the first eight verses in the book of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptizing by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I uh, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you, baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this is really the beginning. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God coming. And though every great story has a great beginning, this is the beginning of the greatest story ever told. It's the beginning of the gospel being heralded to mankind. And it's a story that has the potential to change lives for all of eternity. I mean, there are a lot of great stories, a lot of great books. But can you imagine being part of a story that will change lives for all of eternity and having that kind of potential? But first of all, you have the prophecy of Isaiah in verses 2 and 3. He said, I am sending a messenger ahead of you. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, right away here. Uh, verses 3 through 5, it says this, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. And I want you to keep in mind what it says there just for a moment. We're going to come back and visit that in just a few moments. But also in uh, this text, we see two things that are going to happen. It says, make ready the roads for the king's coming. And also to make ready the people for the king's coming. And those are really key phrases that we're going to come back to in just a few moments. But also in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then, the Lord, then they will present the offerings to the Lord in, the right, in righteousness. But one thing that we have to remember is that His coming won't be as you think. In fact, God's Word reminds us that even in the Gospels over and over, it's not going to be as we think. His second coming, as He comes, will come as a thief in the night, in a moment that you think not. But His first coming, as He comes to prepare, it won't be as you think. And His coming will refine. And in these texts, Israel needed to respond. And however, listeners today still have an opportunity to respond to the message of the fact that he's coming. So it's not only the prophecy that Isaiah foretold, but it's also the prophecy of Mal Malachi's promised Elijah. Just as Malachi promised e Elijah, John promised that Jesus was going to come. And that he was preparing Israel for his coming. And we see that in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5.
He says, look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So there's two prophecies that are being fulfilled right away here. So as a voice crying out in the wilderness, this was John's preparatory work. As we think about the preparatory work, we often forget that some work takes a lot of preparation. Um, John's crying in the wilderness is reminiscent of Exodus 19. This is what he says, in the wilderness, in a dry, arid place, in the wilderness. It's reminiscent of Exodus chapter 19, where God met with the children of Israel uh, before, and he assured them that he was still their God, and where God would once again purify his people in, Acts chapter, or in Exodus chapter 20, verses 35 and following. So this dry, this arid, desertous land, God says, I'm sending you a messenger, letting you know that Jesus is coming. And he's still there. And it says that John came baptizing, a sign of repentance as they awaited Jesus. And we see this in verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. One might at first response say, well, wait a minute, does baptizing forgive sins? No, it does not. But in the picture here, what it is saying here is this. Um, this was not saying that baptism forgave sins. This was a result of true repentance. If you would keep your finger there in Mark chapter 1 and turn over Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, we see exactly what he's talking about here. Beginning of verse 1. It says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, many, may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. What's the picture here? He is not saying that as John baptized that, that, his, forg that his baptism forgave sins. What he is saying is this. When true repentance comes, baptism followed. True biblical baptism. Now, you've heard me say many times that baptism is a picture. It's a public testimony of what has taken place privately in one's life. So as we stand in the water of baptism, we form a what? A cross. What did Jesus Christ do on the cross? He died. That's why we go under the water, signifying the death of Christ. He went down. He died. And then what did he do three days later? He rose again. He came up. Now, it's more than just a public testimony, because as I'm standing before the congregation of people who are witnesses to this public testimony, I am also doing one other thing. When the old man goes under the water, when the old man dies, he is laying aside all that is sinful, all that is part of his old life, but uh, involving who he was before Christ, he's putting it to death. And as he comes up, he is a new man, a new creation in Christ, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's a new creation in Christ. So once again, just as a doctrinal point, that's why we practice baptism by immersion rather than sprinkling. Because it's exactly the same example that Jesus Christ gave to us. And it says that Jesus Christ went down into the water and he came up out of the water. So it was picturing the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. So what's he saying here? 
True repentance is what? We're going one way. It might be the way that our flesh wants to go. It might be the way that the world is going. It might be any number of directions. But we're going a direction, and we're confronted with the truth of God's word. It convicts us. We repent of it, and we turn and go the opposite direction. That's repentance. And so what John is saying, that when true repentance come, bat, comes, baptism is thereby followed. So it's the picture is of true biblical baptism that comes after repentance of sins. So also John's main message here wasn't necessarily you're a sinner, although that message was there. If we look in our text there in Mark chapter 1, he says, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. The main message was not that you're a sinner. We have those who like to proclaim from the street corners, you're a sinner. But his main message was what? The Messiah is coming. Let me ask you a question. What's going to get you further in getting to the heart of a person? Proclaiming that they're full of sin, which is all of us, or letting them know that Jesus is coming, some changes need to take place. We need to proclaim that the Messiah is coming. And let me just say that. That's still a message that's very, very valid for today, right? We serve a Savior, a risen Savior, but one day He's coming. And I hope that people are ready. And hopefully as they are confronted with the truth of God's Word, they'll understand that when the Messiah comes, things are going to be different. And they need to be ready for that change when it comes. Or ready for the Master when He comes. So the message was the Messiah is coming. The intended outcome of that message was hopefully a response to repent. And hopefully when we realize how great God is, that will be the decision that we'll want to make. To repent. We see three characteristics of John here in verses 6 and 7. Once again, verse 6 says, John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and, a lo and ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7, he proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. We see the first thing, that he is clothed in camel hair garment with a leather belt. And that's why we say in 2 Kings... Uh, chapter 1, I'm almost there, Second Kings chapter 1, and my pages are sticking together just a little bit, look at verses 7 and 8, it says, the king asked him, what sort of man came up to meet you and spoke those words to you? They replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So that's why we say it was the second prophecy being fulfilled. He was Elijah's, Malachi's proclamation that Elijah was coming. He was picturesque of Elijah of the Old Testament. Clothed with camel hair, garment with a leather belt, eating locusts and honey. How many wanted to like, feast on that today? That's what I thought. Um, we'll pass. But he was the Elijah that was coming proclaiming. Secondly, you see that he proclaimed Jesus, not himself. He was very careful to magnify Jesus and no one else. You know, it's amazing that as a leader, you can get a following, not, not even trying. There are people who want to be like you. There are people who want to follow you. There are people who want to uh, spend time with you and, and for whatever reason. But in doing so, he didn't say, look at me. In fact, he said, look at Jesus. 
Look to Jesus. In John chapter 3, in verse 25, kind of a cross-reference passage of this, he says, verse 25, says, Then a dispute rose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In every circumstance, John was saying, it's not about me. I'm going to herald the gospel message, but I'm telling you, it's about the one coming after me who's more powerful than I am. It's all about him. You guys have heard me talking about that, he says. It's all about him. And then he says, number three, and this characteristic about John and his humility. He says, I am not worthy to unloose his sandal strap. I can remember in my college years, we used to kind of have this little joking phrase, say, not worthy, not worthy, when someone else did something neat and uh, uh, astounding. But this is not that kind of phrase. This whole idea of not being worthy is a very valid phrase. So there's nothing um, exaggerative about it. It might sound a little bit about spiritual piety, but it's really nothing of that. In fact, in the Babylonian Talmud, it states on page 96, all services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher, with the exception of undoing his shoes. Why is that? You see... The whole idea of being a disciple is that you wanted to learn everything that your master could teach you. In fact, if you were a disciple of somebody greater than yourself, you had to do everything that your master taught you. No exceptions except for one. Unloosing his sandals, his shoes. Because that was not considered a very cleanly act. Remember, this is a dry, arid place. And if you've ever been anywhere in other parts of the country, you realize that sanitation systems are not desirable. Um, there are all kinds of things that run down the streets and the curbs of other foreign cities outside of America. So sandals were dirty. Feet were dirty. Oftentimes carried infectious germs, diseases. It was the one exception. And John the Baptist looks at him and he says, I'm not even worthy to take his sandals off. I should, but I'm not even worthy. What humility that he showed. And over and over he says, it's not about me, it's about him. What a great example to follow. And you notice the differences between John's baptism and the coming Messiah's baptism. John's baptism could demonstrate repentance. Get this. It could demonstrate repentance, but it could not do what Jesus' baptism could in imparting the Holy Spirit once his work was completed on the cross of Calvary. And we see this in Acts chapter 1. Verses 4 and 5 says, While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak, out, speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Because once his work was done on the cross, the Holy Spirit imparted him. John couldn't do that. See, John's only demonstrated repentance. And what do you mean by that? The fact that once they came to true repentance, and they placed their faith and trust in Christ, then they were baptized. As I was reading in the Life Application Bible Commentary this week, I came across a question from one of the contributors. It was simply this question. Do we need a wilderness? I thought about it as I read that question. I thought, what is he talking about? Do we need a wilderness? The author made the point that in our environments, we are surrounded by all sorts of comforts. Computers, TVs, entertainment, friends, etc. We forget at times that there is a coming Messiah. It was in the wilderness that God had to remind them that he was still there and that he was still their God. It was in the wilderness in the New Testament that John had to remind them that Jesus is coming. No wonder if, once again, that the author of the point that he was making is that we need a wilderness to remind us once again and afresh that Jesus is coming. Oftentimes, the greatest stories are set in the backdrop of difficulty, and that reminds us of our need for God. The greatest stories have difficulty. Think about the story of the man from Snowy River. What was his difficulty? Right away in the first five minutes of the movie, Jim Craig's father was killed in an accident with a horse. One of the straps broke, the log came back and crushed him, and he died momentarily the greatest storylines are set in the difficult in, in settings of difficulty and I think of the storyline of Jesus Christ coming coming to a world full of people who didn't believe setting of difficulty where people wanted to kill him where is this baby that's going to be going to be born a desire to ruin his life. But there's still a message to proclaim. Going back for just a moment to verse 3. I want you to think about this just for a moment. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. I want to end with this idea here for a few moments this morning. Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. It's the idea here that there's an emperor coming. And when the um emperor were, was to come into the village, the town, several things would take place. We said earlier that they're preparing the come, for the coming by preparing the roads and also preparing the people. So it's the idea here of making the roads as good as possible. We're going to fill all the potholes. We're going to fix the curbs. We're going to seal the cracks. We're going to make the road smooth. Wouldn't that be a dream? Not losing a tire in one of the potholes that you run over. But that's the idea here. It's the idea of making the roads as good as possible so that when the king's carriage comes in, when the emperor's carriage comes in, 
He's not being jostled and torn around. It's a smooth entrance. In other words, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. The preparation is the most important thing. Not only preparing the roads, metaphorically, but preparing our hearts for His coming. The preparation is the most important thing. I don't know much about asphalt. I've learned a little bit in the last couple of years as Jake has worked in that industry. But I know that oftentimes you cannot put new asphalt over an old crumbly asphalt. Oftentimes you see if somebody needs a driveway redone, they'll rip out the old driveway. Well, why not just put another coat over it? It doesn't work that way. The old new asphalt doesn't always adhere to the old concrete or the old asphalt. So oftentimes they'll come out and dig it down, oftentimes take it all out, and make a new bed of stone, compact it tight, and make it hard, and then come over with a fresh layer. The preparation is the hard part, so that the driveway will last for years to come. The preparation is important. I wonder if we're willing to put the preparation into the Lord's next coming. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ is going to come again someday? Think about that. What are we doing to prepare for his coming? Or if we want to say it this way, at our departure when we meet him. What are we doing to prepare for that? The preparation is the hard part. I think sometimes we, we don't want to do the hard work. We don't want to do the hard part. It'd be amazing if, if we could just kind of snap our fingers and dream real hard and all of a sudden the world around us starts coming and looking to Jesus. But I don't think that's reality, is it? The world we live in requires us to open our mouth, which is sometimes difficult. Anybody else struggle with that sometimes? Certain people that are just hard to talk to. Certain people that you're, just, you're kind of in a hurry. You know you should say something, but you're in a hurry. The preparation is the hard work. But that's part of preparing for his coming. Practically speaking, John was proclaiming and heralding the good news, the story that Jesus Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming. For us, he died on a cross, was buried, rose again. But for us, it's not over. It's not over. We still have work to do. And it's a challenge in our lives that maybe amidst of all the comforts of life, maybe we need a wilderness to remind us. See, the wilderness was not an easy place. Read through the book of Exodus, you'll find that there are a lot of difficulties in the, in the desert. Looking for water, and not just water, water that they could drink. It's a difficult place. It's in the wilderness that we realize how dependent we are upon God. And sometimes we need a wilderness to get our attention. Sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus is coming. And we're taking things way too nonchalantly. Way too simply. I don't know about you, but it's a reminder. It's a reminder. The preparation is the hard work. Preparing for his coming, getting out of our comfort zones, getting out of apathy, 
and getting busy for the Lord. I don't know about you, but it's a challenge to me. Not to say look at me either, but look at him. I'm just an image of him, a reflection of him. I'm bearing his light. I'm reflecting his light. It's not about me, it's all about him. And walk in humility. I think if we had some humility in our lives and we proclaim the fact that Jesus is coming rather than the fact that I'm just telling you, does anyone not believe that they're not a sinner? People know that they're in sin. I'm not saying don't say it. We, we need the reminders. But I think they need to hear that Jesus is coming. I hope they're ready. I hope they're ready. That's a great message to proclaim. And think about this. When you give your life to Christ, you too have a story. They're going to have a wonderful impact on the life of somebody around you if you're willing to share it. Let's pray.